Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, your guide to everything love, sex, intimacy, and relationships. Each week, your host, Zach Beach, interviews new experts on love, including couples therapists, relationship coaches, sex educators, and best-selling authors. Learn the best tips and cutting-edge wisdom to better love yourself, others, and the world. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, everyone. I am your host, Zach Beach, and I'm here with the incredible meditation and compassion teacher, Mary Doan. Hi, Mary, and welcome to the show. Hi, Zach. I'm really glad to be with you today. Today, we are going to be talking about compassion through life and loss. And for those that don't know, Mary Doan is a senior instructor of education programs and a curriculum consultant at the Zen Caregiving Project, where she served as a volunteer bedside caregiver for over a decade. She's a certified instructor of compassion cultivation training, trained at Stanford University's Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education. Mary has completed Buddhist chaplaincy training at the Sati Center for Buddhist Studies and study at Upaya Institute and the Buddhist Peace Fellowship. How are you today, Mary? I'm doing okay today. Yeah, here in the middle of global pandemic and pretty intense time for many of us, today I can say I'm doing all right. I know, the question, how are you, is so loaded nowadays. Lately I've been answering it with, I'm as best as anyone can be in these times. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that sounds that sounds like a good response. Sometimes I feel like I don't even really know how to answer that question right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Mary, thank you so much for coming on to the show. Now we have worked together for many years now, and I know that you are an incredible compassion cultivation training educator and that we have produced together many compassion cultivation trainings and we're actually going to produce another one online on zoom starting january 14th so for our listeners who know nothing about cct what is it yeah and first i want to say what a great partnership and collaboration this has been coming up on our fifth maybe cct class together or me teaching and you hosting. So thank you again for that ongoing opportunity. So CCT, Compassion Cultivation Training, is it's an eight-week course. And sometimes we refer to it as an intervention. It's really a very well-designed, progressive experience that supports us in learning about what compassion is and in deepening our own natural capacity for compassion so that we can benefit ourselves, so that we can bring our compassionate nature forward in our relationships, in our work, in our service, in the way that we live our lives and move through the world. CCT was created at Stanford University in that Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education, which itself is housed in the School of Medicine. So one of the 
unique, wonderful things about the CCT curriculum is that it weaves together practices that are rooted in Buddhism and Tibetan Buddhism specifically, but they are secularized. So CCT is not a Buddhist course or a specifically spiritual course in any way, but it draws from that rich tradition and then also brings in contemporary psychology and neuroscience and behavior science so that we get a chance to explore our own habits and processes and also kind of know why our tendencies might be what they are and why sometimes when we struggle or why sometimes when things feel effortless, what's kind of going on in our nervous system, in our brain. All right, I love that succinct summary. So first off, CCT was developed at Stanford with the Dalai Lama and with his cohort, including Thubtam Jimpa. And now it's an eight-week course that's kind of spread all around the United States, at least, and definitely moved around the world. And it's not backdoor Buddhism. It's totally secular. And because of that, what kind of people and what type of people do you think will really benefit from taking the CCT course? Yeah, great question. Thank you. An easier question to answer is who wouldn't benefit from CCT, right? CCT is appropriate for anyone and everyone. So if you're a human being, CCT is appropriate for you. But to be a little more specific and maybe helpful for people to relate to, if you are working in healthcare, if you are working in education, if you're working in business of any type, if you have relationships in your life, if you're a parent, if you're a partner, if you're a child, any of these realms can be benefited by someone who takes CCT and brings this increased confidence and sort of accessibility to compassion to all of those activities. I love that. If you are a human being, compassion cultivation training is perfect for you. <laughs> and before we get into kind of what is compassion and delve into the concepts around it, let's first talk about why compassion. So what does the research show about highly compassionate people? And what does it show about people who've, say, gone through compassion cultivation training and how it changes their lives? Yeah, there's so much here. But speaking just generally, the benefits of practicing compassion and of CCT in particular there are some pretty great, well-demonstrated benefits. So people who practice compassion, people who have learned and trained in compassion cultivation with CCT, report that it's easier to be kind to themselves and to others, that they feel a deeper sense of kind of overall life satisfaction, that their relationships go more smoothly, that they feel less stress, and or they're able to kind of work with stressful situations and suffering when it does arise, because it arises for all of us. 
And speaking a little more in the kind of geeky way about what we know happens in the brain, that when we are compassionate, when we are acting, speaking, intending from a compassionate place, when we're drawing on all of those resources, our brain chemistry responds in very similar, if not the same ways, to things that give us pleasure when we feel appreciated. So kind of the reward systems in our brain are activated by compassion. So compassion feels good. It's good for us. It's a benefit to us. Such a wonderful list. And it's incredible that a simple practice like cultivating compassion can bring overall life satisfaction, can allow us to be kinder to others and allow our relationships to go more smoothly. And it, indeed, it does cultivate more mental resiliency and able to live a less stressful life. So it's such an incredible practice. So some people also get confused about what compassion is, and sometimes it's associated with pity, with sympathy, and closely tied to empathy. But it is a distinct emotion, concept, intention, different from those things. So how would you define compassion? Mm, Yeah, in a couple of different ways. So first, I like to start off kind of simply and understand compassion as our heart's natural response to suffering. It really is that simple. I also like to turn to the dictionary definition. It's the sympathetic consciousness of others' distress together with a desire to alleviate it. And that desire to alleviate it is important because it links to the active part of compassion. So compassion, as you just said, is a feeling, but it's important to remember that it's also active. As Prince told us, compassion is an action word. So going a little deeper into the root words, from the Latin pati, to suffer, and calm is with. So the meaning of compassion is to suffer with. And I go one more step because the calm is the beginning of the word, right? It's calm passion. So that's what really rings true for me to understand compassion as being with suffering, being a companion to suffering, staying there with suffering, not turning away or running away. Coming to a more contemporary understanding of what compassion means and drawing from this background and the origins of CCT, contemplative scholars and psychologists see compassion as a process, a process that involves awareness, empathy, intention, action, and benefit. As we said a moment ago, compassion is good for us. So I'm partial to the first definition. You know, I like the dictionary definition, some version of sympathetic consciousness of others to stress. 
But that first one is so beautiful. Our heart's natural response to suffering. Because I think it is very important to recognize that we all have this innate drive, this innate capacity to be compassionate to others. And I wanted to probe a little bit more into that last word there, suffering, Mm -hmm. because it is a word many people get caught up on. I remember my first 10-day Vipassana retreat, which is attached to the Buddhist lineage. And on the first day, the teacher was like, life is suffering, life is suffering. And I remember thinking, actually, my life is pretty good. (laughs) And some people do think that the Buddhists can be a little bit pessimistic when they talk about the suffering that is everywhere. So what is your definition of suffering and why do we want to be with it? Mm. You know, I want to live a happy life. Why would I want to intentionally be with somebody else's suffering? Yeah, I love this. So rich, so important. And this comes up all the time. By design, this is part of what we look at and talk about in CCT. Hmm, so where to begin? Suffering is part of life. The Buddhist teaching, right? The first noble truth for people who use that language or have studied that way. But suffering is such a range of experiences. So how wonderful, and I'm so happy for you that (laughs) you felt that way, at least in that moment. I hope it's still true. And I wonder, I imagine that even in that assessment of one's own life, like my life is pretty good, there can still be experiences of disappointment or frustration or fatigue, times when yourself or others or your circumstance are not just right. You know, like if you had a magic wand and you could create things exactly as you would wish them to be, they're not always like that. So This is really the definition of suffering that I use and that we come from. That suffering is simply when things are other than you would wish them to be. So that is easy to say. It's kind of a simple concept, but like many simple concepts, there's a lot there. I think for many of us, that can be kind of hard to accept or integrate when we can look around the world, maybe right outside our own front door, but certainly we don't have to look very far to see very real, enormous suffering that's so much bigger than, oh, things are just not how I would like them to be. So this idea that suffering is kind of a a continuum or that suffering that's huge and suffering that's kind of small is all still suffering. So it Mm. might be like a volume dial or something that Mm. sometimes it's really big and loud and sometimes it's much smaller and quieter, but it's coming from the same source. Mm -hmm. I appreciate that definition that suffering is when things are not what you wish them to be. 
And there are small moments in our life and very large moments in our life when things are not what you wish them to be. You know, we go to the bus and the bus is five minutes late, right? And we wanted it to be on time. That's some small suffering. But perhaps family or a loved one is sick or perhaps on their deathbed. And again, that's not what we wish it to be. So we do experience this level of distress in big and in small ways in our life. And compassion can be our way to meet that distress. And it's also an ability and a capacity that we can improve and get better at. So how do we do that? How can we cultivate our capacity for compassion? Yeah. Compassion is so fascinating to me. It lives in us as kind of a paradox. So what I mean by that is we say compassion is innate. We all have naturally a compassionate nature. It's a quality that exists in each of us. And it's not effortless, or not in my experience anyway. So to be at all sustainable for us, our compassion needs tending to, just as any other natural ability we want to bring out and maintain, or a skill we want to strengthen. So if you think of Steph Curry playing basketball, or Yo-Yo Ma playing cello, or maybe even your own yoga practice, Zach. There's some innate ability there, but there's also commitment, discipline, work. So if you think about cultivating something, preparing it, nurturing it, encouraging it, what's needed, all of those take some planning, some time, some willingness to explore, some learning as you go. So in cultivating compassion, we do all those things with our heart and our mind as the, the fertile soil, if you will. So cultivating compassion, as I know you know, it takes some dedication so sometimes that soil of our heart is rich and ready to nourish a seed of compassion. We were just talking about suffering, and sometimes suffering is referred to as the seed of compassion. But it might be true that that soil of our own heart and mind isn't so fertile and receptive yet. So we can take a step back and work on preparing ourselves to be more receptive and to be more in touch what might be hidden or have become obscured. Yeah, I'm reminded of the stories you hear of even like two babies in a crib and one starts crying and the other one turns towards it and puts a blanket over it or, you know, hugs it in order to alleviate its current state of suffering and we all have with inside all of us this capacity for compassion and like any muscle the more we practice it the stronger it gets so like anything else as you just mentioned it takes commitment discipline and work and when i hear like discipline and work you know i realize that is indeed what it takes but there's also just a, an incredible beauty in how compassion transforms our experience 
and just transforms our way of life and living. And I was wondering if you could just paint that picture for us in terms of how does a highly compassionate person move throughout their life differently than someone not as in touch with their compassion? Like, what does it look like to live a fully compassionate life? Mm. Oof. <laughs> Taking a deep breath to answer this one or to speak to it. I don't think there's just one answer for that question. Human beings have been pondering this for eons, really. As far as I know, every major world religion, every spiritual or wisdom tradition holds up compassion as this deeply valued quality, a worthy and, as you say, a beautiful quality, something worth working towards. So for me, living a compassionate life has to do with a few things. It has to do with love. It has to do with presence, with intention, with wisdom, and with interconnectedness. So if those things are alive in me, if they guide me, especially when I grapple with suffering, then I feel pretty confident that I'm pointed in a compassionate direction. Again, it won't look just the same for you as it does for me. Hmm. I mean, if it includes love, presence, intention, wisdom, and interconnectedness, I don't think I would mind if it looked the same as for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Really incredible values, of course, we want to bring into our lives. So shifting our attention and intention a little bit to our topic for today, compassion through life and loss, mm -hmm. um, let's shift a little bit more towards your work in the world. and. You work for the Zen Caregiving Project, which was previously known as Zen Hospice Care. And I remember hearing about Zen Hospice Care. I was reading some book about it, compassion and wisdom. So for those that don't know, what is the Zen Caregiving Project? Mm -hmm. So the Zen Caregiving Project is a small nonprofit based in San Francisco, California. And as you say, it's been around a while. It has existed for over 30 years now. And most of that time, it was known as the Zen Hospice Project. It began, I think I heard you say when you were wondering, what was that book? Did it have something to do with <laughs> Suzuki Roshi? Uh, so yes, <laughs> the roots <laughs> of the Zen Hospice Project are when members at the San Francisco Zen Center were searching for a way that their spiritual practice could shape their response to the suffering in their community. And this was specifically homeless and unhoused people who were literally dying in the street. So fast forwarding to today, Zen Caregiving Project, we offer courses for caregivers teaching what we call emotional skills we focus on caregiver well-being with 
mindfulness-based techniques and approaches that support emotional resilience. All the courses that we teach include some kind of content on compassion. We discuss loss, topics like communication and boundaries. We know that better supported caregivers deliver better care and that this is true of caregivers who are so-called professional, so doctors, nurses, social workers, also true for family caregivers, someone like you or me who's caring for a family member or a friend. We still train and support volunteer bedside caregivers. That's how I first came to the project as a volunteer caregiver a number of years ago. All of that is unfortunately on hold right now because of the pandemic, but it's central to the work that we continue to do. The team is very small, but we are fully committed. We're here to do what we can in the world at large, and especially, my goodness, right now with caregivers of all kinds are contending with almost unthinkably huge challenges with the COVID pandemic. Hmm. One of my favorite things that compassion teaches is that love is a verb and that compassion includes a willingness to help or a desire to help. So it's really wonderful to hear that basically practitioners at the San Francisco Zen Center wanted to bring more action into their practice and into the world and into their communities. And then that's how this caregiving came about, a way to almost like fully embody the values that we talk about in the temples, in the churches, and bringing it to the people that need it the most. I can hardly even imagine bedside caregiving in hospice. And a lot of my own inexperience with it is because we of a society have really put death on the outskirts. Unless you are doing work in a retirement home or a hospital, you don't often see people at the end of their lives. And I'm wondering, you know, I think of you as being on the front lines, so to speak. And I'm wondering how you feel about our cultural approach to death and if we need to change it. Mm. I want to say first, thank you for thinking of me as being on the front lines I would not put myself there. I'm just bowing in respect to people who are in hospitals and who go to work every day and put on PPE and all those kinds of things. So we're all in it together, as the phrase goes, but I want to honor, honor that work. But speaking more directly to your question about this kind of death phobia and hiding away people who are sick and people who are old. I think that we're all diminished. We're all diminished by society that denies loss and death. It's like a missing puzzle piece, and we're not whole without it. I think it's pretty fair to say that our allopathic medical system including physician training, you know, continue to hold the view that death is failure. This is starting to shift, but by and large, 
think it's fair to say that this view of death as being a failure uh, still dominates. And dying is not failing. Death is and can be many things, mysterious, sad, heartbreaking, frightening. You know, I could, I could go on. But death is 100% normal. So we don't die because something has gone wrong. We die because we're human. Saying that is not at all making light, you know, of illness, of suffering. These are very real and sometimes devastating, you know, experiences, often. We don't want to be in pain. We don't want to lose what is precious to us. These are among the most basic human truths. And I think because of fear and because the truth of aging, sickness, and death are mostly hidden away from view, facing the reality of them can feel impossible. There isn't a lot of support or we don't see sort of models of how to do this. So we can't integrate it if we haven't had any real opportunity to know it or to acknowledge its presence before it's thrust upon us in some way. So yes, the elderly among us, our elders, remind us of our own vulnerability, our own mortality, and they're kept out of sight in an attempt to solve for that discomfort. And it becomes easier for us to dehumanize people who are old, people who are sick, and people who are dying. And easier to believe that it won't happen to us, but those people are us. One thing I learned from volunteering at the bedside in hospice is the view that the person in the bed, the dying person, is just a little bit ahead of me on the path. Mm. That's mm. the only difference. Wow. So I love what you said earlier on that we're all diminished by a society that denies loss and death and that it's a missing puzzle piece and we are not whole without it. And I think this is very important when we do talk about kind of the Buddhist view of life is it is a total embracement of the reality of the human experience, you know, what is sometimes referred to as the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. And we're attempting to free ourselves from the delusion, you know, that life is good all the time, and that embracing the reality that suffering is a part of life and death is a natural part of life. And you mentioned how facing the reality of death for many people can feel impossible. And of course, we meet that reality no matter how much we try to avoid it when somebody we care deeply about is perhaps dying and dealing with the unknown of what happens after and also whether they are going to get better. So how can we best love someone through the process of their death? Yeah, I think... The way that we love someone through the process of their dying and death 
is really the same way that we love someone, the same way that we love someone through the process of their living. So this is it. This is just the thing. People who are dying are people. They're still people. A person who is dying continues to be a whole person, right? This is another lesson for me from hospice, that being sick and approaching death doesn't mean that you aren't a full human being any longer. You know, really, dying is just about the most human activity that there is, or among the few. (laughs) Most human activity that there is, yeah, is to die. So I think loving someone through this process is about attuning to that person as fully as possible. And by that, I mean taking cues from them and being willing to stay with them as they face and express a full range of experience. So that might include fear, anger, uncertainty, exhaustion, but also just as possibly can include dignity and peace and beauty and acceptance. So being with someone who is dying, seeing them clearly, responding to their pain without distancing ourselves from them or dehumanizing them is a profoundly loving act. I think there's a kind of what I refer to as a radical presence that we can practice, radically compassionate presence that, again, for me is an expression of love, being present, radically present with someone just as they are, even if we have known them to be different, such as healthy, and even if we wish they were different, such as Mm. not dying. It's so important to remember that we can love somebody throughout their life as best we can. And then through the process of death, we continue to love them in the, very much the same way by providing our non-judgmental, attuned, and compassionate presence. Hmm. And, you know, hearing you talk about your experience, I'm reminded of another teacher, a late teacher known as Ramdas, who you and many people have probably heard of. And I remember this one talk he gave along the lines of taking care of his dying father. And the rest of his family was like, oh my gosh, thank you so much for doing this, Mm. uh, for sacrificing, you know, this part of your life, because no one else wanted to do it. And he was like, he was like, oh yeah, no problem. And on the inside was like, this is the most spiritual and incredible experience that I am having right now Mm. because of the profundity of dealing with somebody or working with somebody at the end of their life and as they're passing on to the great beyond you get in touch with that great beyond and you appreciate them right in the moment because you never know if there's going to be another moment Mm -hmm. so i'm curious in your experience working in the end of life care do you have a greater appreciation for life in general As part of the embracement of the reality of death, does it then accentuate, and how does it accentuate the experience of life? 
Yes. I would have to say in a word, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and to say a little bit more, that appreciation, that deeper appreciation that I've developed and I'm still developing, it's not trite. It's not even necessarily always enjoyable. I have gratitude. I also have awe, this sense of like bowing to life and all of its mysteries from deep respect and a lot of humility. Dying and death are profound transitions you know, and endings. But life is filled with transitions and endings. So yes, a greater appreciation. But more than that, in me, a greater wish to be present to life overall with nothing left out. Or at least that's my intention. I want to share, if I may, a short story from when my own father was dying. And I was fortunate to be able to sit with him for long periods of time. Um, he died at, at home, not in my home, but he died at home. And I was there for a lot of time. And I remember watching him breathe, you know, just watching him breathe. And towards the end, he was not responsive. And he experienced something that's quite common, I've come to know, is the breath getting drawn out, you know, so for what seemed like long stretches of time between the end of an exhale and the beginning of the next inhale. So if anyone has also had the opportunity to sit with someone who is very close to death, you probably know what I mean, that you can wonder, you know, at the end of each exhalation, like, was that it? Is he going to inhale again? You know, did he just die? And I began to sort of feel or realize how arbitrary the breath is. So my dying father's breath is arbitrary, but my breath is arbitrary too, as is yours, as is everyone's. So we breathe, but we could just as likely not be breathing. Our breathing is not guaranteed, but the cessation of our breathing is guaranteed. So each breath is something to appreciate, to marvel at, but to not get so blinded by the appreciating and marveling that we don't live, that we don't engage fully with what's happening. Mm. Such a beautiful transformation, this total embracement and presence, and as you mentioned, both awe and humility to this life and gift that we have been given. And that the breath tunes us in to the nature of life, both the in and out and up and down, going in and going out, but also our recognition that, you know, if we are breathing, then we are alive. And if we're alive, then it is a wonderful gift. And your story of your father reminds me a little bit of the poet Mark Nepo. And he writes about in one of his books about his battle with cancer. And going through the treatment process, he was able to do less and less things. So eventually he was bedridden you know, and hooked up to all sorts of machines. 
and he couldn't even you know type on a computer to write a book and he said all he could do was breathe and his mm. whole life was just the breath just the next breath and the next breath and the next breath and it is that breath that connects us to life and the, the process of life and breathing is part of the human experience and then the cessation of breathing and death represents you know the flip side of the coin of this gift of life and when i think about mark nepo on his deathbed with breathing oh he's he's ended up surviving but when i think about anybody on the deathbed just noticing their breath there becomes very little one can do anymore we've been talking about compassion for somebody else who is mm. dying and i'd love to hear about compassion to ourselves when we're listening to our breath and wondering if there's going to be another one so when we're feeling sick mm. how can we also continue to be compassionate to our own experience yeah this expression of compassion towards ourselves is often very challenging the most challenging for people this is my experience i can say yeah compassion for the self is the hardest when we suffer even in those small ways that we spoke of earlier it can just feel really hard to bring compassion to our own experience in cct we look much more closely at this and things that we might be afraid of are actually happening when we're expressing compassion for ourselves that we're being weak or self-indulgent or lowering our standards you know there are many many ways many reasons why self-compassion is so difficult but if we are sick and if our illness is significant if it's a terminal illness you know the challenge is just that much greater there's likely to be disbelief fear if we find ourselves in that state so extraordinary gentleness is called for that's the first thing that comes to mind i mentioned how natural death is and We've also said, but I'll turn back to that fear, resistance to illness and dying are just as natural. So when those are present, the natural fear, the natural resistance, uncertainty, can we be exceptionally kind and patient and tender with ourselves? I can say, speaking for myself, I have a few of these, like, please, anything but that kinds of fears about getting sick and particularly conditions, you know, at the end of my own life. I think many of us do. So that might be a place to start practicing, you know, to spend a moment or two letting ourselves think the unthinkable kind of find our breath there and picture what we might want or need in that situation. Who would you be if that were happening? How would you want the people around you to know you? And then ask yourself if you can offer what you need to yourself. So that's not like magically erasing something but 
offering an open heart to things just as they truly are. That's the first step, I think. And for anyone who's listening or may listen, for anyone who is sick right now, compassion is of great value. Self-compassion is of great value. Not losing sight of your wholeness, your humanness, your capacities for love and connection, even joy and pleasure, you know, right along with resistance and fear and pain. So we said something earlier about compassion being a paradox. And one thing self-compassion can help to make possible is more space to embody that paradox. So for things that feel like opposites to be true all at the same time. So we might be sick and uncertain, but we are still all those other parts of ourselves too. Something else about self-compassion is recognizing that we're not alone. And that can be so comforting. So that even if we're isolated, as many of us are in one way or another right now, you know, with this pandemic, whether we're sick or healthy in the moment, this experience of isolation, we can take a moment and remember that thousands, millions of other people are going through something similar. So many others know what it's like to feel isolated or to be afraid of illness or to feel pain. So we're connected. We can see, maybe, begin to see that the world is still with us and we're still with each other. All of this is really easy to say. It's easy to say, but in my experience, it's worth the kind of leap of faith to try it out, even if it doesn't sound believable or helpful. A favorite phrase of mine that I turn to often is, the answer is always compassion. And I've really found this to be true. The meditation teacher, Sylvia Borstein, is who I know came up with this. The answer is always compassion. So that compassion is available to every single one of us without exception in every circumstance. And it's always appropriate and it always makes a difference. Hmm. The answer is always compassion. It's such an incredible softening hearing you talk about this process. I'm imagining almost just like a really beautiful just lotus flower blossoming. Um, when you mention extraordinary gentleness and exceptionally being kind and patient and tender with ourselves, and that gentle process of opening our heart to things just as they are. So thank you so much, Mary. This has been one of the deepest conversations we've had on the podcast. So thank you so much for sharing us both your experience and your perspective and your insight into this incredible world of opening the heart to compassion. And I want to finish by asking you a question I love to ask all of my guests, which is quite simply, what do you wish everyone knew about love? Ah, that's a beautiful question. One way 
that I view love is that it's a precious natural resource. Not unlike fresh air or clean water. You know, it's ours. Mm. It's all around us. It's our birthright. And so I wish that everyone knew or everyone remembered that love needs us to tend to it, to care for it in responsible ways and to protect it so that it doesn't become degraded or diminished. Love deserves our respect. Love is all around us and our birthright, and it is up to us to tend to it, care for it, and to protect it. Such beautiful sentiment. Thank you so much, Mary Doan, for coming on to the show. And for our listeners who want to learn more about you, how can they find you? Thank you, Zach, for the opportunity to talk together today. I'm on Instagram at unfolding underscore compassion. I'm on Facebook at Mary Doan Compassion Cultivation Training, CCT. And then people can also be in touch with me and read about some of the work that I do at the zencaregivingproject.org website. Wonderful. Thanks so much for coming on to the show and reminding us that the answer is always compassion. And for our listeners who are wanting to cultivate more compassion in their lives, our compassion cultivation training will start on January 14th, and it meets for eight Thursdays for just two hours live and online on Zoom. Along with that, there's so much additional bonus materials. You have daily meditations you can practice, daily resources and practices that you can bring to bring more compassion into your life. And it's just a wonderful way to meet with fellow like-minded community members who also are seeking to cultivate compassion in their lives. So feel free to sign up for that at theheartcenter.com. That's the-heart-center.com. And then you can join us all in our little sangha that we've created online. Thanks again for listening to the show. If you want to learn more about me, you can head to zachbeach.com. Thanks again, Mary. Thank you so much, Zach. Thanks again for listening to the Learn to Love podcast. To learn more about the show and your host, head over to ZachBeach.com or TheHeartCenter.com. You can also follow Zach on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.